0: Welcome to the March 2017 edition of Affiliates in Action, featuring the ACB Radio Amateurs Affiliate and the Nevada Council of the Blind. This is Rick Morin, and Rick Lewis will sit down with ACB Radio Amateurs President John Glass and Vice President Steve Dresser and chat about, oh, all kinds of things that I never knew about when it comes to ham radio. Then I'll sit down with Rick Colmey, who's the president of the Nevada Council of the Blind. He's the guy that wears this really fancy cowboy hat, and you'll come to know very, very well at the upcoming ACB convention in Reno, Nevada, this July 2017.
1: I'm Rick Lewis, and this is ACB Radio's Affiliates in Action. I'm talking with two people at this time, John Glass, president of ACB Radio Amateurs and vice president Steve Dresser. John, how long have you been president of the affiliate?
2: Well, let's see. I'm going to have to think about that for just a second because uh, I've been president and vice president and uh, held a number of positions in the organization. I think this is my second year of uh the current presidency is that right, Steve?
3: I believe that's correct. And you know, one one of the things that, uh, in some ways, we pride ourselves on in ACBRA is we may be the l- most loosely organized affiliate of ACB. Um, in that, when we have a meeting, we sometimes have to kind of recap and see who's still in office and who's in charge, and you know that kind of thing. We we just you know we we just keep it informal. Uh, in the tradition of amateurs who just do not like any organization that uh, gets in the, you know, any organizational details are just not part of what they want to do.
1: There you go. Well, that's what the FCC rules are for, for those organizational details. And that's probably about the limit you want, right? That's about it. Yep.
3: And, and we yes. stick to that pretty well. I mean, you know, we, we, we don't even know who we are on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> so, ACB Radio Amateurs has
1: existed for how long?
2: Well, ACB Radio Amateurs has existed in its present state since the early 90s. And uh, we actually have some history that has been told by some of the older hams among us that ACB Radio Amateurs was active as early as the mid-1960s. Now, I don't know if it was an official affiliate at that time, But one of the things that was real interesting is that a number of hams have told me that back then they would sometimes get a hotel room at the convention hotel and set up an HF station. They would get some help from the hotel uh, maintenance people to erect an antenna on the building. And uh, this was before the days when the hotels were completely sealed like they are now. You know, you get a hotel room these days where you can open a, a window and it's pretty rare. But back then, apparently, they didn't have any trouble running a coax cable from outside into the room. And the hotel room that they had gotten for that purpose was basically the ham shack. And people could come up and operate the ham station and uh, get on the low bands and make contacts worldwide from the convention. That would have really been a lot of fun.
1: Oh, it would have been.
3: So. Of of course nowadays nobody even thinks about i mean with all of the 2 meter you know handhelds and 2 meter mobile rigs um, most people kind of don't even think about HF as a as a vehicle anymore because you got repeaters and echo link and that kind of stuff and you know, people think I'm not going to bring an HF radio and an antenna and try to, you know, ground things and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. Just not happening. Well,
1: it's a lot of work and it's, it's a lot to yeah. carry around, too, these days
3: with airplane that travel the way it is. And uh, that's another thing. The other problem that even if you could find a hotel that didn't have sealed windows, they're probably not going to let you up on the roof to put up anything. Just for security reasons. Sure. Now, by way of explanation,
1: HF is high frequency, basically the short wave band. And two meters, which we talked about, is above the FM band in the spectrum, really between uh, channel six and seven. We have a ha- Well, the old channel six and seven before we went HD. There's a hand band in there, uh, along with public service communications and other things.
2: That's right. And um, I got licensed in 1974 and at that time i became aware of acb because there was a net that was held on 20 meters every day and a net is a group of people getting together who have a common interest that they like to discuss this particular net was called the acb service net it met every day on 14.305 megahertz for anybody who is uh familiar with the 20 meter ham band and there were two call signs that i remember of of hams that were very active in that net and they were k0 dnt that was leo in uh i believe he was uh in minnesota if i remember correctly
3: i think you're right he he was net control for years i think
2: i remember him he was and there was another gentleman that had the call w a zero ijv and i think his name was tom he was also somewhere in the midwest And throughout the 70s, those were the two people that I remember being the most active with the ACB service net.
3: Of course, in many places, that was the place to be, because if you were on 20 meters, um, for those of you who don't know anything about these different bands on on shortwave, 20 meters is the kind of band where you can hear stations that are across the country. For instance, I'm on the East Coast uh, and I can I can often hear stations from California, but somebody who is 50 miles away from me, I can't hear them at all. and that's the way 20 meters work. So if you're going to run a service net that covers the whole country, you want to be kind of centrally located if you're going to be the one who um, acknowledges stations and uh, decides who goes next and that sort of thing, which is what they call net control, and um, the middle of the country is the best place to be. Plus, having other people in other parts of the country to help you out for
1: those people you can't hear. Right, right,
2: absolutely. So, the affiliate today, um, we do have a club license. The call sign is W3ACB, and uh, we sometimes use that use that call sign at the conventions. We um, have held nets at the conventions to contact people who are there on uh, two meters. The two-meter simplex frequency that we use every year at the convention is 147.480. And this is a frequency that any ham can get on who is at the convention and just give their call sign and see who's there uh, at any time of the day or night. And uh, when I first started going to ACB conventions myself, it was, uh, well, let's see, 1987 in Los Angeles was the first convention I attended. And at that time, the ham group was really active. I mean, you could find somebody to chat with just about any time, day or night. Oh, yeah. In recent recent years, uh, you know, admittedly, our our activity has has dropped off a little bit as far as people being on the radio at the convention. But uh, we do try to, um, you know, chat among ourselves as much as we can. Uh, We also, for the last two years, have held joint sessions with BITS, Blind Information Technology Specialists, on topics that we felt would be of interest to both groups. Uh, Two years ago, we had a presentation on digital mobile radio, which was given by Betsy Doan and Barb Lombardi, K1EIC and K1EIR, respectively. And then this last year, we got a presentation from John McCann on using some ham radio apps on the iphone uh, specifically echo link which is a program that allows people to connect uh, licensed ham radio operators to connect with other ham radio operators around the world and chat live and the other application that he demonstrated for us is called repeater book and this is a free app that allows you to find local repeaters in your area, so that if you go traveling someplace and you have a, a, a transceiver with you and you want to get on and chat with some local hams, what you can do is load this uh, app on your on your phone or your iPad or iPod. And
3: I don't it think will- it's available for Android, is it, John? Is it only available for Apple
2: I devices?
3: Think
2: they don't uh, offer an Android app just yet my understanding is that they're working on one but i don't think it's been released
3: yeah I, I hadn't heard of one yet but that's kind of an important thing you know in case somebody with an android wants to go uh, run out and get it and they're not going to find it that's a then, far cry right. from the
1: old uh, days of the braille repeater directory which would be out of date about a year before it came out in braille
3: <laughs> that's right and 10 volumes to boot yeah. <laughs> that's
1: right So uh, the whole idea is to provide, I would assume, uh, support and fun for uh, amateur radio operators in ACB. Is that uh, a a good summation of it? I would say
3: so, yeah.
2: We do have an email list for our members uh, so that we're able to stay in touch with each other throughout the year. And one of the things that we use that email list for is keeping people updated with the latest technology that uh, we have found to be accessible. You know, amateur radio products are kind of like computer programs and iOS apps and so forth. Some work better than others as far as blind and visually impaired people are concerned. And so one of the things that we try to do is share information on products that we find especially accessible.
3: In the old days, it was kind of neat because you had one switch per function Yes. And the switch was usually either a knob with a big pointer on it or a toggle switch, which was either up or down. Um, but nowadays, you've got a lot of little buttons all alike, and you can push them all day long, and you can't tell the difference between one push, two push, three push, or no push. And so if the radio doesn't have some way of providing feedback, which some of them do and a lot of them don't, Um, they're not going to be accessible um, at all. So, um, you know, it's really become much more... In the old days, there were a lot of workarounds, and you could find them. But these days, it's really more of a question of comparing notes on who's bought what. uh, Does it work? Can I use it? What trouble did I have using it? And, you know, so that's become... Even though, in a way, the radios are a lot more sophisticated and a lot more powerful... Um, the access has become in a a way a bigger question than ever and uh, we really have to stay in touch with each other and talk a lot more just to find out what's going on and it's not as likely that you're going to buy something and then find somebody in your club who will say, you know, file a little notch into you know, the big knob or, you know, help you put some braille labels on the, on the front panel of the radio. Number one, the radios are too small to do that. And number two, even if you did, it wouldn't help you very much because you got multifunction buttons that uh, do all kinds of different things. Sure. Now, what about non-amateurs? Uh,
1: what about non-licensed hams or uh, even CBers? Are they eligible to join the
3: affiliate? Absolutely.
2: Yes. We don't require a person to have an amateur radio license to be a member of ACBRA. And as a matter of fact, we would like to be a resource for people to help them find accessible study materials and actually just be a pool of operators that they can go to to ask specific questions of while they're thinking about getting into ham radio or studying to get their first license.
1: I know uh, somebody like me who'd, uh, I took 24 years between the interest in, uh, in amateur radio, I took that long to get my first license. So there are probably
3: others of you like me. Oh, Maybe sure not that are. extreme, but... <laughs> oh, absolutely, well, and, yeah. And, and the truth of it is, you never know, because a lot of, a lot of us got started, or at least, well, I mean, I say a lot of us, and maybe that, maybe this is true, and maybe it's not. But for me, it was certainly true. My initial interest came from being a shortwave listener or SWL. Yes, although um, there's less of that done today than there used to be. A lot less because so many of the broadcast stations have just gone away, and you can you can still find um, a lot of the big powerhouses that are broadcasting religious programs and you know a lot of stuff from the black helicopter crowd and you know that kind of thing but um, not nearly as many of the kinds of things where you used to listen to Radio Netherlands or the BBC or Radio Deutsche Welle or CBC um, not CBC they called it um, Radio Canada R- International.
1: International yeah yeah, Radio, Radio Canada, Canada
3: International. International And and of course because you know let's face it it costs a lot of money to operate these big high power transmitters and the stations have just found that it's easier to just stream over the internet because you know they can do that with a lot less cost and that's what they do but um even back in the old days part of what i did was listen to broadcasting on shortwave but then i would tune by these places where guys were sitting there just talking to each other and i thought oh this is kind of cool and i found out that you know that was the hams and so you know in a way that's and, and, and there are a lot of people that get into the hobby just through CB. Um, well,
2: and my, my initial interest in ham radio came from a five-band portable Radio Shack receiver that my parents bought for me for my eighth birthday. And one of the bands was VHF High. It tuned from 144 to 174. Ah, uh, yes. And I started listening to a lot of the local hams who were operating on two meters I didn't know at first who they were, I mean it sounded fascinating to me because these guys obviously knew each other and they were having friendly conversations about everything from technical subjects to where they were taking their wife and uh, family out for dinner that night and uh, it was just extremely interesting to me and once I found out that these were ham radio operators and that this was a hobby that I could participate in, that was what really got me going.
1: I know in my case, I was monitoring 40 meters, and there was a 7-year-old girl who was licensed, and I was a 7-year-old guy. And no, I hadn't you know, discovered girls, as they would call it in those days, but I was intrigued by the fact that somebody my age was actually on the air doing this. I don't know if she maintained an interest in it over the years, because I don't think I ever heard her after I was, say, 9 or 10. Maybe she wasn't even licensed. No, I assume she was, but, uh, but I thought that was pretty impressive.
3: Well, and you know, the interesting thing is that she was on 40-meter phone yes. talking, which means that in, in order to do that, she either had to be um, under the control of somebody else who was licensed, say, maybe her father, or... She had actually gotten her general license, which is pretty impressive for a seven-year-old. Oh, exactly. In those days, the, the initial license that you had for ham radio was novice, and that was strictly code except on two meters. That's right. Well, I
2: was very fortunate because my family moved across town, and we moved in next door to a boy who was three years older than me, and both he and his dad were licensed hams. And the way that they had gotten into ham radio was through a science teacher at our local junior high school who was a ham. And he convinced the school administration to allow him to teach a ham radio class as an elective. And over about an 8 to 10 year period, I think they determined at one point that he had licensed over 400 kids through his classes.
1: That's amazing. And it was
2: sort of, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, official, but it was commonly known that if you passed your novice test, you got an A in the class. Ah, wow. And so, uh, you know, in addition to offering those ham classes, he also started a radio club at the school. They had a a multi-purpose room that they allowed us to use, and um, several local hams donated Older equipment that they were no longer using. We had a big pile of surplus receivers from Hammerland and Helicrafters and National and so forth. But we also had a novice station that we set up uh, that consisted of some Heathkit equipment. For those of you who remember Heathkit, it was a DX60B transmitter and an HR10B I always wanted receiver. Uh huh. Well, always they worked really they worked really well as our novice station, and uh,
1: uh, kit being the operative word in Heath kit because you had to build it yourself.
3: That's right, or get somebody yes. to do it for you, and that was, of course, always an issue for anybody who was blind. Um, and, but there were usually people that were willing to help out, and the Heath kit, the original Heath kits were, and, and even the later ones. Were sufficiently easy that you didn't necessarily have to have any radio knowledge you to just build. Just follow the instructions. Follow the instructions and make sure that you knew how to use a soldering iron. Mm-hmm. And as long as you did that, uh, you didn't even have to have a whole lot of test equipment. I mean, they had they had all kinds of interesting alignment procedures and, you know, they'd say, all you need is a voltmeter. That's it. You don't need an oscilloscope. You don't need anything else. Just then, you know, here's how you do it. And it it worked. And, I mean, you could put that stuff together and turn it on and it would work. And so, you know, a lot of us got started that way because it was a cheap way to buy things, too, because the the Heath kits were about half the price um, of the assembled radios. And of course, as as you these days find somebody to put it together, you were fine. Of course these days you uh,
1: have the assembled units right. and uh, they pretty much take a lot of the guesswork out of things.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, It's that's, plug and play today. I mean, it's really you take it out of the box, connect it up, turn it on, and you're good to go.
2: That's very true. And you know, just to finish off very quickly on the junior high school radio club, one of the best donations that we got was that when a local ham was moving out of the area, he donated his 40-foot tower with a tri-band beam and a rotor to us. Nice. And we were able to put that up on the school grounds. And what it did for us is it gave us an antenna to use, many of us, that was much, much better than the wire or vertical antennas that we were able to put up at home. So yes. Yes. There was a real incentive to go and socialize and operate the radio at the radio club station because of the fact that it worked so well.
1: Now, for someone who has the radio bug in one form or another, whether you've actually gone and gotten your ham license or just have that interest that you've never quite followed up on, how can folks who Fit that description, and I imagine there are a lot of folks who, do, who are listening, how do they join the affiliate if they're not already members? Or at least get more information about the uh, ACB radio amateurs?
2: Well, the best way to get more information, I think, is to contact our treasurer, Mike Duke. His ham radio call is K5XU, and Mike's email address is very simple. It's K5XU at Comcast.net. Uh, Our membership dues are only $10 a year, and joining the affiliate, as I said before, gives you access to our email list, which is very helpful for getting information on all aspects of amateur radio. If you'd like to join, and as we said, you don't have to be a licensed ham to become a member of our affiliate, you can send a check for $10 made out to ACBRA to Mike Duke, His mailing address is 5127 Parkway Drive. He's in Jackson, Mississippi, and the zip code is 39211. Anyone who would like to contact me directly is welcome to send me an email to my amateur radio call sign, which is NU6P at ARRL.net. And I'll be glad to help you any way that I can. And you certainly don't have to join our affiliate to ask questions. We're here to help, and uh, we want to provide as much helpful information as we possibly can to everyone that has an interest in amateur radio.
3: And, of course, if you're at the convention uh, this summer, uh, certainly drop in on our meetings. Uh, I think we're going to have two of them, aren't we, this year, John?
2: I believe we're going to have a joint session with BITS. Again, this summer, and we're still in the process of working out the details for that. We also are planning on having our own business meeting, which I believe is going to be on Wednesday afternoon this year. Yes, since uh, the days are, uh, are
1: yeah, changing. Everything just is a shifted little bit. back a day. And of course, you can get in touch with ACBRA members before the meeting by using 147.48 Simplex. There is an attraction. Regarding amateur radio and accessibility of the meetings, isn't there?
2: Yes. One of the things that we've done at our meeting for the last several years is we have sold raffle tickets, and these are available to licensed HAMS. Uh, we have raffled off a dual band 2 meter 440 megahertz handheld transceiver, and the radio that we've been raffling for the last few years has been one of the Osheng uh, Chinese transceivers that has limited speech output. Um, it speaks menu numbers, it speaks frequency information as you enter it on the keypad, and there are a number of things that it tells you with its internal speech synthesizer, which are very helpful. So that's the radio that we've been raffling off, and people just love them.
3: Great. And and don't be intimidated by um, Business meeting because, as I said earlier, um, we are not uh, heavily into uh, procedures and all that kind of stuff. You know, our business meeting is probably about 50% social and then, you know, a little bit of business if we have to, but, you know, we try to keep it at a minimum. There you go. Well, thank you both for uh,
1: being with us here on Affiliates in Action. And of course, uh, we hope that this uh, helps people learn about the Amateur Radio affiliate and want to join and participate. Thank,
2: Thank you, you very much. Us. Yes, we really appreciate having the opportunity to be on the program. Thank you, Rick.
1: My pleasure and this is Rick Lewis for ACB Radio's Affiliates in Action. The Randolph Shepard
0: Vendors of America ACB affiliate holds their Sagebrush Conference each year mid-February in Las Vegas, Nevada. The local host each year is the Nevada Council of the Blind. ACB Radio has had the privilege of broadcasting Sagebrush for the last four years, and this year we had the opportunity of sitting down with President Rick Coolney of the Nevada Council of the Blind to learn more about him, his affiliate, and some of the plans they have for the upcoming ACB National Convention in Reno, Nevada this coming July 2017. Now, when you're at the ACB National Convention and you want to meet Rick, just ask somebody, hey, can you bring me over to the guy with the cowboy hat? You'll find him. I'm here with Rick Colmey. Did I pronounce that right, Rick? You sure did. Thank you. Who's the president of ACB of Nevada. And, Rick, I have to say, uh, you are an incredible host. Thank you for the sagebrush conference i mean you've been here pretty much every minute of this thing uh, meeting people at the door bringing volunteers um, in here uh, the people here have just been absolutely fabulous um, so thank you so much for that on behalf of sagebrush and brian and myself i mean we've we've enjoyed every minute of it thank here. you
4: we, we we appreciate the opportunity to help you yeah we're well, we,
0: we very much uh, appreciate it also. Rick, tell me a little bit about yourself. What's your background? What brought you to, to Nevada? And then um, I'd like to hear a little bit of the history of ACB of Nevada.
4: Okay. And if I may, uh, in a friendly way, it's Nevada. Nevada, yes, thank you. you got it. I'm sorry. Well, it's <laughs> funny, Brian and I were debating
0: that before. Is it you know the, you know the, how how is it? So I'll, I'll just let you pronounce it from now on. From, Not a problem. From now on, it's Las
4: Vegas. <laughs> yes. No. Okay. Uh, no problem. Now, as far as my own background, uh, I became aware that my eyesight was going away, and lost the usable. Portion of the central part of my vision in in one eye when I was still working for Bell Telephone in Saint Paul, Minnesota, and Bell Telephone had an attitude that uh, since I was going to be uh, imperfect, that they would uh, give me small, minor jobs to take care of, even though I was at the top of the pay scale for union workers. Uh, They put me to guarding manhole construction in the summer and let me know that I would be mowing the lawns in the wintertime. So I waited for my opportunity and finally had one and went to work managing a service station. And that lasted about a year and a half. And I went to work on a garbage truck. And uh, it wasn't, you know, the best paying job in the world, but it was income. Then my sister and her husband... Came, uh, to visit and offered me an opportunity to come out to Las Vegas to relocate, where I'd probably have more job opportunities, they thought, and I decided to take them upon it. We knew our parents would be moving off the farm and out to Vegas in time, so I came out here and went to work. Uh, with my brother on a part-time job starting out 2 o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of August, putting sheetrock into new buildings. Oh, gee. And my brother's thermometers were reading 160, 180 degrees inside the building, and I loved it. I was home. I, I hadn't felt that good in I don't know how many years because I was already showing arthritis. So I stayed, and I love it. I love this place. Uh, I worked that job from august to the next april and in april my good eye went until i i knew i was getting where i was gonna have to stop driving so went back to minnesota hitchhiked from las vegas to minnesota which i'd often hitchhiked across country and i loved it uh saw my doctor and it was certified legally blind in uh, what was it I think it's June or July of 1972 came back to Vegas and the job I had had which netted me $2,600 cash the month I had to quit it was gone Uh, but uh, it was Life was, life was changing, and I went to school, went to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas on a GI Bill, got involved in politics, uh, got involved in veterans organizations, and started lobbying in 1975. From then, went on to get a BA, ran for the assembly twice, and uh, never did leave the politics behind. In 77, I spent the whole session at the Nevada legislature and loved it. Right. It was fabulous. And as you well know, the
0: the line between politics and advocacy is a very fine one, I think.
4: Yes, it is. Uh, and you have to be very careful with it. Yep. So anyway, um, in 1979, 80, K. Poe was calling around. Uh, looking for blind and visually impaired individuals to get involved because a bill had been introduced into the state legislature to do away with the Bureau of Services to the Blind in the state of Nevada. And we, I had been given the Nevada Council of the Blind in a box while lobbying in 1977. I just put it on a shelf. Something told me to keep it. That it would be very useful, and Kay and I reorganized the Nevada Council of the Blind and started it up again in 1980. And we're still using the same PO box that I rented for us that year. Great. Uh, and it's—I was president for four years then. The organization began to grow. Uh, trying to think of the gentleman's name who became president after myself and stayed president for many years you can go to our website his name is on there Mm -hmm. uh our website is www.nvblind.org and we need to do some updating i've been after the guy for six months now to do it one of these days he will (laughs) Uh, but uh we've grown from uh being in a box to being a uh an active organization. We love socialization. We're trying to get more and more people out of their homes and active because you have to learn how to live with your blindness before you can do a job effectively. Right. Right. Uh, For most individuals anyway, there's a few rare ones that can slide right in and do well. And that's a good thing. Uh, But uh, we've had our ups and downs. We've had good times and bad times, uh, but we lost our 501c3 status for a while, but got it back, so we're okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all a learning process, and it's it's great. So my history kind of blends with NCB's history. Uh, my history along the way, you know, well, after, after we reorganized, I was president for four years, I had to walk away because I was... I had to find some money to pay off some debts. Right. And after I finished that, I found out I wore out part of my body. So after they replaced the hips, <clears throat> I started getting active in politics and NCB again. And uh, life goes on. So I hope that's a quick enough version. No, that, hey,
0: that's fantastic. Thank you so much. What, what are some of the, uh, the, the key legislative uh, issues that blind people are facing here in in the state at the moment?
4: Well, the the number one thing that has happened that affects all the blind in the state over the years is even though the legislature in 1981 and 1983 and again in the 1990s told the state administrative branch, leave the Bureau of Services to the Blind alone, the administrative folks took the agency apart. Right piece by piece, behind our back, without telling the legislature or us. And in 2013, they introduced a bill to just simply do away with it again. And their argument was, well, there's nothing left, and it, takes to, it costs too much money to, to administer this separate agency in our record-keeping. So I went in and asked for a bill that would have an agency for the blind and deaf together. Right, right. And uh, they said, oh, that's too expensive. That's, we'd have to go through so much to keep track of the various monies between the deaf and the blind. Oh, we couldn't do that. And then found out that they'd been taking care of the deaf over in the Division of Aging and Disability Services for many years. In fact, the state president of the Nevada Association of the Deaf didn't even know the deaf could get services over in vocational rehabilitation. Yep. And so it blew the argument out of the water, but they refused to admit it, and they kept saying the same thing over and over and over, as if saying it often enough they would make it so, and it isn't. Lost the bill to create the Agency for the Blind and Deaf together, but they did not get their wish either and the legislators knew that things are wrong but they also found out that they don't have all the power they should have in directing the administrative branch of our state government so we're at kind of a standoff but this year there's been another bill introduced that's kind of a funny one we're trying to find out what it's going to do we don't have bill language yet right Uh, we're going to have to be aware of that
0: What's the logic that they're using to want to dismantle it? Uh, I mean, it's pretty much a common thing that's happening all over the country. uh I'm just um, interested to, to see if it's the same type of thing that we're seeing in Massachusetts as to the reasons
4: why. Probably is. And a little bit of history here back when Del Frost was head of the rehabilitation division in Nevada in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, and then into the 80s, the National Association of Rehabilitation Administrators decided that they would not, that they do not want any separate agencies for the blind and for the deaf in this nation. The administrators decided it was easier for them to handle the bookwork and channel the money where they wanted it uh, than anywhere else. And that is part of what's driving what has happened through all of these years. And the rationale that I heard in 2013 was a little garbled, but basically it was that they could streamline things better by having the Bureau of Vocational Rehabilitation over in the Rehabilitation uh, Division and then actually giving services to the blind and visually impaired through the uh, Division of Aging and Disability Services like they were handling the deaf. Right. What in actuality happens is you can't find your way through the state agencies anymore. You don't know where anything is. Right. And one of the greatest benefits of having the Nevada Council of the Blind around is our resource page, so, you, so you can know where the resources are
0: it 's great that you that you you 've got such a keen eye on this whole legislative climate because certainly uh, what 's going on federally is probably going to influence part of this too don 't you think
4: Yes, most definitely because the 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 National Association of Rehabilitation Administrators affect what happens on the federal level. They right. go up there and they lobby. They can afford to, right, right, and lobby in a way that we can't.
0: How, how many people in in the in the council? And do you have any chapters across the state, or are you pretty much uh, centralized here in Vegas?
4: We're we're all one family because. No one wants to go through all of the bureaucratic things that you have to do to create a chapter in the state of Nevada. You have to go get your own little corporation. You have to get your own 501c3 status. You have to get your checking account, have the officers. And people simply are not willing to put out that kind of an effort.
0: You know, how many members do you have?
4: We run... uh, the last year, we before we began our renewal process, we were over 135, which is very good. Uh, it's taken a lot of work to get there, but we're, we've got some things going on that are bringing people in. A lot of young people are coming in and enjoying being with us.
0: That's great. What's motivating the young people to join?
4: Uh, things like uh, let's go eat together at Buffalo Wild Wings. Uh, let's have a Valentine's party. Yep. Uh, we had our second Valentine's party last Friday night, and it was a blast. <laughs> we, we had people come out of their homes that hadn't been out in uh, years to a social event. They, they love that. It's a chance to get together, to talk together, to make friends, meet new people, and we human beings are very gregarious individuals. Right. So they love these opportunities. We we do have monthly meetings in Las Vegas and Pahrump where we have large enough uh, populations of members that uh, we can get together. We might have 15 to uh, as many as 40 people show up for a, a monthly meeting, depending right. on the topic, the speaker, or who's available. A lot of people have doctor's appointments they got to go to and... They've got to go when they've got to go. If they miss our meeting, well, they've got to miss the meeting.
0: How big an issue is transportation in this state for? Big, very big. How are you addressing it? Uh, or how do Pippi, Well, let's, let's, let me ask it differently. From a pragmatic standpoint, um, what type of options do people have in terms of transportation?
4: In Las Vegas uh, area, they have the RTC, which provides the paratransit. And that's the primary mode of transportation for the disabled here. Uh, We, of course, have the taxi cabs, and now Uber and Lyft have come in, which uh, help a lot. Uh, In fact, Uber and Lyft took away 13% of the rides that our cabs usually have in Clark County, uh, according to the stats from last year, which really hurt. But the cab companies still don't get it. Uh, so one of these days, I hope they will. Now,
0: have Uber and Lyft reached out to the disabled community?
4: No, um, and and we have just learned recently that uh, if you have a guide dog, uh, a lot of the drivers will cherry pick who they pick up if they recognize that you're a guide dog user. Like if you put your your picture on their site with the, with your guide dog, they know right. you've got a dog. Right. You're not going to get a ride as quick, but. Where you know that'll be addressed. They'll they'll get over that sooner or later when they find out that guide dogs are clean.
0: Yeah, just, just uh, from an informational standpoint, Uber um, is recognizing more and more that there is a huge uh, potential marketing opportunity for the disability community. Um, in Massachusetts, we're doing a lot of stuff cross disability. Mm-hmm. Um, meeting with Uber, uh, encouraging Uber to be an, al- an alternative to some of those other you know transportation options that, that you mentioned. Um, in fact, our MBTA system, the uh, public transit system in Boston, is subsidizing Uber trips, Uber and Lyft trips, because it's cheaper for them to do that than it is to, to pay a paratransit company to do it. Um, I would encourage you, something you might want to do, Rick, is just reach out to Uber and and just, you know, every, what's interesting about Uber is every region or every state, I'm not sure exactly how they organize, but but they all have their own um, offices where they, they, they operate as somewhat like a franchise. Mm-hmm. But, but they do share a lot of information between, between groups, and, and they all know what everybody else is doing around the country from a disability standpoint. Mm-hmm. And you might find there, there might be some great opportunities for, for, um, for the council to help influence some of their decision-making here.
4: Thank you. Well, so. Another thing we've been doing since Pahrump doesn't have a bus system and it's 26 miles wide by 27 miles long, uh, and it doesn't have shoulders along a lot of its roads. You, you can't walk or ride a bicycle safely. About four years ago, we became involved in an effort to create a bus system within Perump. And our representative on, on that committee has been working very diligently. And because of our efforts, uh, they do have four buses that can be used if they... County Commission ever gets off its high horse and stops opposing us, right? Uh, but we also now have because our aware, efforts of awareness of need for transportation have more rides into uh, Las Vegas and back out to Perump. right? And right. That, that's a you know fifty-mile run, so uh, that has helped immensely as far as transportation between Las Vegas and the Reno area. Uh, walking, which I did once, is a, you know that's that's a little time-consuming affair. <laughs> it took us 18 days at that time. But uh, well, we do have a bus that goes out through Pahrump and up into the Reno Sparks area. Uh, flying is another option, or you can find a ride somewhere.
0: Yeah, and there's a, it's an exciting year for uh, for the count for your council because uh, you are the host. Um, committee, or the, the, the host for the upcoming national convention for ACB. We love it. And uh, what's it like? I've always wondered, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, <laughs> just so you know, I'm a member of the of the um, national convention committee. Oh, um, right. Somewhat, somewhat in, a, in a limited basis, because, um, I mean, I attend a lot of Janet's meetings, but I, I am the guy who's in charge of all of the audio-visual for the entire convention.
4: Oh, very good. And, Congratulations. Uh,
0: and thank yeah. you. Oh, no, no, nothing to congratulate about. <laughs> but, um, you know, we uh, it, it's its kind of fun uh, what we do. We Over the years, we've uh, accumulated a whole, bu- whole bunch of our own AV equipment because it's a lot cheaper. I mean, for us to stage a convention like, like we do, if we did all of the AV through the hotel, we'd be easily paying the hotel $30,000. Mm-hmm. in in AV charges. We, we about cut that in half by virtue of bringing our own stuff in. And I have the pleasure of doing all that work. So I'll get to know the, the Reno hotel staff really well, but what, what's it, um, what's it like to be the host, um, um, you know, the, the, the host affiliate and uh, uh, what kind of work, or what kind of interfacing you doing with, with the National Committee and all that kind of stuff?
4: Well, it's it's exciting. This is the fifth National Convention that has come to Nevada starting in 1985, and this is the fifth one I've been involved in. And uh, K. Poe and I actually put together the first bid that brought ACB to Las Vegas in 1985, and then things changed, so I wasn't able to attend that convention. <laughs> but uh, it, it's exciting, you, you get to meet new people. Uh, this year, uh, in forming the local host committee, I reached out to people like the Washoe County School District Special Education uh, Administrative Branch, I reached out to the UNR Disability uh, Agency there. And I reached out to the Lions Clubs in Northern Nevada. And, of course, being a lion, that was a natural. Right. And uh, there's, there's just been a, a great response uh, in, in finding all of what we need to put together uh, to, to fulfill our obligations as a host. There's like 22 things we have to do. And some of it is like providing possible sites for places for tours, Uh, find a list of uh, all the doctors that are around, the emergency rooms, veterinarians, drugstores, banks, ATMs, anything that anybody might need when they come into town. Yep, yep, yep. And provide all of that information. And the Internet is making it much easier as time goes on, thank heavens. Right. A lot of hours go into that. Uh, We're putting together a welcome party. We have the 3D Blues band coming back. There are three blind individuals on that band. Oh, fabulous. Yes, they played for us in 2011, and they were a big hit. Great. So our welcome party is looking good. Great. Uh, We have to find items to put into the bags that are handed out to the convention goers, bag stuffers we call them.
0: Yep. yep so yep.
4: we're working on that. We have to provide a point where everything that's sent to the Reno area, Sparks area ahead of the convention, say for the auction and other things has to be sent to someone locally. Yep, sure. They provide spot in their home or their garage and then haul it all down to the convention for us. Yep. We have to find 5 brailers brailing machines to provide yep, for yep, use yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. in 2014 here when i moved into the R- riviera my room had two queen-size beds in it and i had enough room to walk into the room go into the bathroom on the left, and go to the first bed. <laughs> that room was full of things we brought. <laughs> I
0: know. I, I, I can imagine. You know, doing, when I got my hotel room, I I said, "Give me plenty of rooms. I'm going to bring all the you know all the AV stuff in there too." And yes. was, yeah. Crazy. Crazy.
4: Exactly. So, the so the thing.
0: last convention that was in Vegas was at the Riviera just before it closed. Right. Yes. That is correct. Yeah. So, I mean, was there? Uh, Do they have a? a a typical demolition type party when they when they brought down the Riviera, or is it still up right
4: now? No, it's it's down. Yeah, it's down. They they had a party and, and took it down quickly. The thing is, the longer you leave the building on the property, the longer you pay taxes on the building. Right, right. So knock it down and get rid of that tax obligation. In Huge. spite of what they say, our economy has not improved. Right. Uh, to the point where all of what went dead in construction is being reborn we have properties sitting all over the valley that, that are dead, right? just eyesores. And eventually they'll be picked up, but not right now.
0: Yeah, you know, it's um, all over the place. Everybody's trying to build casinos to bring revenue in, into the, into the state, yes. state coffers. How much of that do you think has been impacting um, the economy here? Or, or is it just the, the general economy that's brought Vegas down?
4: it's a general economy that brought us down more than anything vegas has a special atmosphere a special allure to not only the national but but the the international people Uh, nobody has been able to match that yet Uh, it may have slowed vegas's growth uh, with the growth of, of casinos around the nation but we are still growing. We're still adding hotel rooms, and we're still running out of rooms right. uh, on, on special weekends. Uh, you know, the, the Nevada Council of the Blind, Kate okay, Poe and I went out and created the Nevada Council of Blind Lions Club uh, about 12, 13 years ago. Because ACB encouraged us to do that and because it's another way to educate the public as well as the Lions organizations about what the blind actually needs so they don't go out and just raise money right, Exactly, and, and throw money at us, but they can become involved with us. And uh, we found that in Nevada... Uh, it's been a really good partnership. The Lions organization here has been delighted to have the blind with them, right? And it's it's fantastic. And lions are everywhere in this state.
0: Now you've mentioned Kay Poe a couple times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he, he is quite a, a very prominent figure here in RSVA. Very. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, about him? His you know the significance of of his role here in in Nevada or Nevada. Um, Nevada. Nevada. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> That's you know, okay. It's just like my dad, you know, well, whatever. Not I, a problem. I'll tell you sorry about
4: my dad later. But, yeah. But no, he's, uh, I mean, he's a big vendor with RSVA. He has been. He retired a couple of years ago now. Okay. okay. Uh, his health has deteriorated, unfortunately, but you know, none of us are going to get out of here alive. Mm-hmm. And he has been the idea man, and he has been the one who knew how to organize things, uh, and and get them off the ground. He's been uh, a positive thinker with the positive attitude that it can be done. And this has helped immensely with the Lions Club, with the Nevada Council of the Blind, and in his own life and business. Right. So, right. yes, he's a great man because he's never been afraid let his loss of eyesight slow him down, right? And it's it's great that way. And uh, i there's talk he was going to be here for the luncheon today. So oh, that'd be great.
1: Hope everyone enjoyed this morning's presentations. Are some pretty fantastic.
4: I think we're being overridden
0: Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I uh, well. Hey, Rick. Thank you so much.
4: You're welcome. Uh, You're thank welcome. you for having me. You're it's, very welcome. Thank you
0: so much. Why don't you scoot over there and get some lunch? Right, I and, will. Uh, We'll talk talk again soon. Thanks. Thank you very much for uh, spending your time with us here on Affiliates in Action.
4: Thank you. Mark. My pleasure. Thanks.
0: If you're interested in having your affiliate featured on Affiliates in Action, please email me rickmorin at rick.morin at comcast.net. Again, that's rick.morin at comcast.net or call me at 617-633-7947. Listening to Affiliates in Action here on ACB Radio Mainstream. On behalf of Rick Lewis and myself, Rick Morin, we thank you very much for listening to Affiliates in Action, and we thank you very much for your support of ACB Radio. Please mark your calendar to tune in again next month for another edition of Affiliates in Action here on ACB Radio.